Welcome back to Sos Ignatius, the podcast where the name is made up and the people are real. Today, I have the pleasure of sharing one of my family members with you guys, my aunt, Julie Catino. Julie's known from a really young age that she's always wanted to be involved with branding and marketing, and uh, it's no surprise that her journey has taken her uh, to working on accounts out of the country, uh, back to the, the States to be the vice president of brand for Virgin's new North American companies, and now to teaching everything she's learned along the way via her book, which you guys should go buy or check out. Um, she has an online brand school. She helps teach a class at Stanford with Tyra Banks. And most recently, she shares her knowledge through this podcast. So I hope you guys really enjoy. Okay, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm here with someone uh, who's very special for a couple of reasons. Um, the first being that she is my aunt and we are related. Um, the second being she is an expert when it comes to marketing and branding. Um, but without further ado, my guest today is Julie Cotino. How are you doing today, Julie? I'm doing great, Jake. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So when you and my dad were growing up in Marblehead, Massachusetts, what did you think you wanted to do? when you grew up? Well, I kind of always knew actually that I wanted to do something in advertising or marketing and actually uh, kind of funny story when, um, when I was little, you know, my parents, your grandparents wouldn't let us have uh, a dog because your dad is allergic. And this was the days before designer dogs. So <sighs> they, you know, really unreasonably said no to the dog. So I went into the garden in back of our house and I took a rock. Um, these were the, this is the seventies. So under our jungle gym, there was a bunch of rocks. So if you fell, you would hit a rock. Um, but I took a rock and I put it in a cool whip container and I put some grass in the cool whip container and I created the pet rock. And, um, you know, I solved sort of that, that issue about the pet. And then a few years later, of course, um, Gary Dahl out in San Francisco out on the West coast created the official pet rock you know, stole my idea, uh, made $6 million. But I remember from a very young age when I saw that my idea that I just created as a way to solve my problem was, you know, in all the toy stores, I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. Um, when I grow up, I'm going to, you know, create things and, and bring them to market and, you know, get in the toy stores before some other guy. <laughs> and you knew that like that young, that was, you understood that, was, that that was the the path? Yeah, I was about eight years old. And, you know, even when I would play Barbies, you know, I was more interested in kind of creating clothes for the Barbie in different situations. And, uh, you know, I studied communications in college. Um, I actually thought I wanted to be a, a TV personality first, uh, but I, I interned at a couple of uh, television stations and then I had an internship in London where I worked on a chocolate account and I got to uh, do sort of secret shopper, uh, you know, uh, forays out in London with the agency's money looking for, um, you know, new ideas in chocolate. And I, I remember saying to, you know, my dad, you know, I think I'm going to switch to advertising. <laughs> you know, you get to you get to shop and look for new <laughs> ideas and, um, you know, in this case, eat a lot of chocolate. So. Yeah, I what could be really better? Wanted... Yeah, exactly. What could be better? Yeah. Um, so knowing so early on, did you that that you wanted to do branding, marketing, stuff like that? Um, were there specific steps you took uh, throughout, you know, while you were growing up, while you were in college to realize that as a career? Yeah, I was probably going to sound kind of nerdy, but I did actually. I mean, when I was in high school, I worked for a local advertising agency in Marblehead that also produced Marblehead magazine. And then I, you know, tried really hard and was successful to be the editor in chief of my yearbook. Um, and then all through college, you know, I, I did some 
you know, summer camp fun stuff, but I also did uh, quite a few internships, um, CBS in Boston, CBS in Philadelphia. So I, I really, you know, I had the passion for it and I would, um, you know, meet people that worked in advertising and they would offer to help. And I think one of the smart things I did was take them up on it, you know, right. and, you know, if I was lucky enough that somebody gave me their card or said, if you ever, you know, I was in Philadelphia for college, but if you come up to New York and want to uh, have an informational interview, uh, and I did it, I got on the train from Philly to New York and I would, you know, set up one interview and then I would call other people and say, Hey, I'm going to be there next Friday. Can I come, can I come sit with you and just ask you about your life, your career? Yeah, that's cause that's one of the things that I feel like lately I've been doing more and more and uh, just going out and actually taking people up on the offers they have to help you because I've found that a lot of people are willing or want to help and share their experience um, at the very least. And all you have to do is take them up on that offer. And it's like only until recently have I really started to do that. And I feel like you can just learn so much more um, by talking to people that have kind of walked the path that you want to walk. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. I mean, I actually just wrote a blog post about this a little while ago because I also, have, you know, do a lot of guest lecturing at universities. Right. So, you know, Stanford out where you are and um, Berkeley and um, some, you know, Cornell, Columbia, it sounds like a lot of big names, but, you know, smaller, smaller universities too. And inevitably after I speak, you know, I get all these connections on LinkedIn and I can tell you the ones I don't respond to are the ones that say, you know, I heard you speak. I'm interested in, you know, advertising or branding. Uh, could we get coffee sometime? And can I ask you a few questions? And that to me is like a very lazy approach. Um, hmm. The ones that I definitely respond to are the ones where people say, you know, I heard you speak or thanks for coming into the class. Um, I've ordered your book and I've written a book review. I uh, talked to people in my marketing class about it. I have, I see that you've done, you know, X, Y, Z, um, because there's like a lot of information about me on LinkedIn and on my website, and like a lot of other people. And so they've done their homework. And then if they say, you know, really specifically, I'm wondering if I could have, you know, 10 minutes of your time on a, you know, Friday morning just to ask you a few more questions. Um, then I'll say yes, because I think what that's done is it shows me they've done their homework, but it also shows me they're, you know, they're willing um, to give as well as get. You know, as, for me as an author, it's important to get book reviews on Amazon or it's great to have, you know, people uh, follow me on, on social media um, I've even had people come after me, up to me after talks and say, you know, I, I'd really like to be your intern. Here's how I could help. You know, I noticed you don't have an Instagram account. Um, I can help you set one up. Or, you know, I took some pictures of you talking today. I'd love to, um, you know, post some for you on your Facebook page. So um, I, I, I don't know if that's you know, something that's interesting to your audience, but I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I try to do the same thing when I reach out to people, not just say, Hey, I'd like to connect, but you know, I read your book or I read this article and I've shared it or I've posted it. And, you know, here's specifically what I'd love to talk to you about. No, I think that's really interesting and, um, a good piece of advice, especially for someone like, uh, me and other people listening who might have a lot of different interests and um, want to explore the different interests. And, you know, I mean, it makes sense. I've never really thought about it that way, but it makes sense that you'd want to show more than just, I've heard about you or I've seen you do this. Like, can I meet with you and ask you something? It's like really, and, and it's not a lot of extra work. A lot of times people probably have seen more of your content or remember a specific part that they could point to and, show that they they were paying attention more than just seeing you're um, a professional in a certain sphere. Um, no, that's interesting. And I'm definitely going to implement that going forward. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about after college for you, um, kind of after some of these internships and stuff like that. Uh, you did mention a little bit earlier that you had been working in the UK, I think, um, with the chocolate, right? That yep, was UK? Yep. Yeah, that was for yep. a summer during college, yeah. Right. And there was a point after college where you actually decided to live in Europe for a little bit. Um, can you talk about what went into that decision? Yeah, so that was the most amazing experience. But I, so I was working at Gray Advertising and account management, and uh, it's called Gray Global now. And at Gray, they had this thing where if you were in account management, you kind of wanted to, you know, progress up the ranks. They would uh, send you abroad uh, for a couple of years when you kind of got to account supervisor level, and you didn't have a lot of control over where you got to go. You usually just had to say yes, and you had about three weeks to pack up your apartment uh, and go. <laughs> and um, I actually uh, took Spanish in high school and college, and I had lived in the UK, and um, all of a sudden they said, hey, Julie, you're going to France, and I didn't speak any French. Um and, you know, I couldn't even really focus on it because you literally had like three weeks, you know, to go. Right. So um, what I did speak, though, and the reason why they sent me over there is I spoke Procter & Gamble. So I mm. uh, had worked on Pantene and Shore, uh, which are P&G beauty products in the U.S. at that point for about three or four years. And they said, oh, you'll be fine. Um, you know, we'll, we'll send you over there. Everybody speaks English in the agency. And chances are your <laughs> clients, you know, because it's a global business, um, might not even be French. And, you know, here's your plane ticket and, you know, good luck. <laughs> so <laughs> that, was, um, that was pretty amazing. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, um, a year and a half into my um, – you know, into my time over there at tennis camp, uh, I met this handsome Frenchman and stayed another year and a half and, you know, brought him back with me. And now we've been married, uh, I don't know, 23 years. So, uh, so it did work out, but it was really, really, really tough. What were, what were some of the biggest difficulties aside from obviously not knowing the language? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'd ever really been alone so much. You know, I was used, I'd come from, you know, a big group of friends in high school, and then college is sort of built in social. And then when I was working in the agency, you know, there were a lot of um, account executives my age, and, you know, we would do ski house, summer house, and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, I, I literally didn't know anybody when I moved to Paris. So, um, you know, it was the first time I'd really like, ate dinner in a restaurant by myself and, you know, <laughs> had to really go out of my way to make friends. And, you know, I had work, I had colleagues right away, but there were a lot of weekends and, um, you know, uh, after work and, uh, that I had to start to be comfortable being by myself. Um, and that was a really important lesson, which I think everybody should spend some time. I know it sounds weird, but should spend some time by themselves um, and realize, you know, what kind of company they are. And, um, and then I, you know, I got lucky cause the, my boss was really wonderful and he would have me over on the weekends and I made some friends in the agency that would start to invite me out. And then I made my own group of friends too, through, you know, it's kind of what we were talking about before people gave me phone numbers like, Oh, you're moving to Paris. You should call so-and-so. And a lot of times we take those phone numbers, but we don't call. Um, you know, mm. we're embarrassed or we figured they, you know, they have their lives, but I did, I did call and, and, you know, I probably called, you know, five people and two called me back, but the two that called me back ended up being really good friends of mine. Um, so that's also a lesson that I try to, you know, keep with me now. I, I have a lot of people from the different companies that I've worked with from all over the world that were sent to New York for a year or so. And I would really try to like invite them up for, you know, a home cooked meal or for Thanksgiving or, you know, just to, to play tennis on the weekend because it's, it's kind of lonely being in a, in another country. And then I eventually did learn yeah. French. Um, and right. Uh, I was going to ask about that. What did you, were you actively trying to learn or was it just kind of the submersion into the culture that got well, you to become fluent? 
Yeah, no, I, I worked really hard at it because you could actually live in Paris for years and years and never learn French, you know, particularly if you're doing business there because, you know, the international language of business is English. A lot of my clients weren't French. You know, there's French, there's English newspapers, there's English, you know, cable TV. Um, you know, you can, there's expat community, you can find people. But what I, I kind of did the opposite. I said, I'm only supposed to be here for two years. Um, when I was at the agency, like I was technically um, entitled to make everybody else speak English because that was the official language of the agency. But I said, if I do that, I'm just going to come in as the ugly American. So I would <laughs> sit through meetings where I really uh, was struggling, but I did it also because I wanted them to realize I was come. I was cognizant that I was in their country so I was going to learn the language and for the first six months it was so hard I was so exhausted I would come home every day to my apartment and you know in, in tears just <laughs> you know so wiped out and then about six months into it it kind of clicked and I did have a, a tutor also that I would see a couple times a week a couple blocks away from my office but it really was living there and you know, I'd go to a dinner party and they'd say, oh, Julie, you're American, sit next to so-and-so who's American or, or British. And I, I wouldn't. I'd be like, oh, no, I'd really rather talk to, you know, to somebody who's French. Right. And, um, you know, it, it paid off, but it was hard. So when you first moved there, what was the one thing that you missed the most from the United States? And when it was time to come back, what did you wish you could kind of take with you? Oh, that's such a great question. So uh, I definitely missed bagels the most. <laughs> <laughs> I had moved there from New York and uh, maybe it's changed. I hope it's changed, but there was nowhere to get a decent bagel in Paris. <laughs> and in fact, uh, uh, our mutual cousin Jennifer came over to visit me and she said, what do you want me to bring? And I said, H and H bagels. So that's what she brought. Um, and what did I wish that I could take? I wish that I could have taken home sort of the, the, the joie de vivre, the, the approach to living. Um, they mm. really do have it. Um, it wasn't always easy to work in France because I think I'm a little bit more kind of chop, chop straightforward in the way that I work. But um, they definitely know how to live. You know, there's more of a vacation. People stop to have a proper lunch instead of eating at their desk. Um, you know, people actually take their vacation there. You know, it wasn't unusual for people to leave for a month in August and, um, you know, other holidays and spend Sunday with family. So the rhythm of life um, was really, really nice. And I try to recreate that here, but it's hard because I think as Americans, we're very more like, you know, you got to be productive all the time. Whereas my boss in France, he actually used to say to me, you know, you answer, you answer questions too quickly. You know, when client issues <laughs> would come up, cause I, you know, I was account manager, um, and a client would have an issue and he'd say, don't, don't respond right away. You should just kind of, let 24 hours pass and usually either the issue will resolve itself or, um, you know, or something new will come up, you know, a new, a new angle to it, but reacting too quickly isn't actually the best way to serve a client. And I, I actually recently saw him. He, my old boss, he was in New York for the weekend. He's retired now, but, um, I actually got the opportunity to thank him for that advice because I do try to think about it and I do think it's true. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially like even regionally within the U.S., I feel like city to city, you have such these different paces and, and sort of, I don't know, ways to live life. Um, but yeah, gaining all that experience definitely, I think, has proven valuable. Um, what experience I've gained has proven valuable and I'm, I'm certain you're, that's proven valuable for you. Um, and that is definitely something to think about because we do tend to move pretty quickly. Um, yeah, this go was ahead. even before social media. I mean, this is before, you know, I think that it's even just quadrupled because this was still, I mean, we were using, 
guess yeah, we were using email, but it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't texting anybody. I didn't have that kind of phone there. And, you know, and I, I think uh, yeah. that now it's like if you don't hear back from somebody in 30 seconds. Um, what know, happened to them? Yeah, what, what happened, you know, or, and I think in business sometimes um, I do think it's really important to take a deep breath and to sleep on something and not to react right away. And I definitely learned that in, in France. So when you came back to the U S and, um, you transitioned from gray, um, what were you trying to achieve and where did you go? Well, so I'd worked on uh, P&G for, uh, for different, different products for about six years, and I, I wanted to come back. I got engaged um, to a Frenchman, but I wanted to come back because my, uh, my contract, if I stayed any longer, was going to kind of be a local contract. It was sort of more interesting for me to come back. And then I worked on um, – I didn't want to work on P&G anymore, so I worked on craft. And I worked on uh, honeycomb and Kool-Aid. And it was the first time I had really worked on products that uh, targeted to kids. Uh, and we did a lot of um, new product brainstorming and a lot of trend work. And that actually led me to Interbrand, which is a big branding uh, firm, because I started uh, naming different, different flavors of Kool-Aid and different products for Kool-Aid. Um, and uh, that caught the eye of the folks at Interbrand, and I actually ended up um, being uh, the head of naming there. So I really wasn't looking for my next job. I loved working at Gray, and uh, it was a big enough company that was a lot of opportunity, but I got recruited, and I came to Interbrand, and I uh, ran the naming group for uh, a few years, and then I had my famous uh, McDonald's moment in the airport that, uh, that led to where I am today. Before we get into that moment, cause you left us with such a cliffhanger. <laughs> um, I do want to ask this question before it gets out of my head. Um, cause you were, you're talking about working on Kool-Aid, which is a product that, you know, Kool-Aid's delicious, but it's quite honestly terrible for you. And it's something that you have your, your branding and your marketing, like you're saying to kids. Um, have there ever been like moral lines you felt that you wouldn't cross or any examples like that where you're, you're being asked to brand some sort of product that you know isn't necessarily good for people or is like a bad thing where you've kind of had to draw the line? Um, you know, it hasn't come up, but in my own mind, like, for example, I don't think I would ever work on cigarette account. Um, because I've had family members who've, you know, had lung cancer. Um, mm -hmm. I think if it, you know, I, like if today, if somebody asked me to work on e-cigarettes, even though it's a legal product and, um, you know, there's some people that say it's safe. Um, I think I would have an issue with that. Um, <laughs> as a Patriots fan, I don't know what would happen if somebody <laughs> asked me to, uh, you know, do the branding for the Jets or the Giants. I'd have to, I'd have to think about that a little bit. <laughs> Um, but Kool-Aid was interesting because I never really thought about it as bad for you when we were working on it. You know, maybe we were drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. But, um, <laughs> you know, there were two sides of the campaign for Kool-Aid. There was definitely kids. And I was part of the team that took Kool-Aid Man from being this big, you know, guy in a, in a fat pitcher suit that would break through walls to actually... <laughs> make him more cool. We were, we were the first group that um, used uh, CGI and created an animated Kool-Aid man. And this was the, I guess these were the early 90s, like the X Games. So all of a sudden Kool-Aid man was um, on a surfboard and a snowboard and, you know, doing some, some cool things. Um, so it was really more fun. You know, it, it um, has a little bit of vitamin C, but the other part of the campaign was to moms, and it was really fascinating because moms really saw Kool-Aid as um, something that they were serving to their kids, but with a lot of love, because back then, at least, most of the, what we were still selling was the packet, so you'd have to rip open the packet, 
put it in a pitcher, add water and ice, right. stir it up. And even just that ritual of creating something, the moms felt like they were doing something a lot better than, um, than just, you know, giving you a soda or a can of juice. It was really about like stirring in some love. And I worked on mm. the brand essence of that. And, and we actually got kind of deep and sort of psychological about that, you know, what that meant to moms, how she was bringing back like part of her childhood. And, you know, I grew up with Kool-Aid, so I could remember that. Um, and then passing it on to their kids. So I think most of the people on the account felt really good about working on that brand because we, we spent a lot of time thinking about her emotions. And then plus we got to make Kool-Aid mm. Man do these really cool things. So right, <laughs> it was right. sort of fun. And that's pretty cool though, the talking about having your own memories of drinking Kool-Aid growing up and then being in charge of the direction of some of these things that had significance to you. It was kind of cool because my, you know, when you're, I was a young mom at this point, or, you know, I was a mom of young kids and, you know, kids never really understand what you do for a living, <laughs> but, no. you know, especially, you know, they say, oh, she works at a computer, but my kids would go around and say, well, my mom knows Kool-Aid man. You know, my mom, <laughs> <laughs> she hangs out with Kool-Aid man and, uh, you know, she, and also honeycomb. So she's, you know, so they, that was what they thought I did. Um, it got a little trickier than when I moved to Virgin because that was a different word to explain to them. But um, at least the Kool-Aid man years were, <laughs> were pretty fun. That's funny. Um, before we get to Virgin, can you talk about that McDonald's moment that you, you left, you teased us with earlier? Yeah. Yeah. So this was, this is a true story really changed my life, but this is when I was, so I was working at Interbrand, um, you know, I was a head of consumer branding and I was traveling a lot, like a lot of consultants do. And I remember it was the, it was winter and I was in Newark airport and I really, you know, I loved the work I was doing. I loved going to visit my clients, but I really didn't like flying. And it wasn't that I'm afraid to fly cause I'm not, it's more, I just find the whole experience kind of, um, I don't know, it's tiring. It's like it drags you down. You know, you go through yeah. uh, security and then you're running to your gate. And and I felt like I could never remember what airline I was flying on because I was traveling back and forth to Omaha and did the merger of TD and Meritrade. And um, TD was out in, uh, Meritrade was out in Omaha. And, you know, the bunch of carriers fly there. So I was like, kept looking at my ticket, you know, am I on United today or Delta or whatever? And I stopped in my tracks because I saw through the window in the airport this um, this airline, uh, this air airplane parked on the tarmac, and it had on the tail fin these McDonald's golden arches. And hmm. I remember thinking that actually would be a different kind of airline, like different than the ones that I was sort of bored with. I thought, you know, not so much I thought there'd be chicken McNuggets on board, but I thought, you know, maybe you know <laughs> McDonald's is so like easy you know it's easy to order there's a big menu of options you can get a value meal um i thought maybe uh in those days i had to fly i still do actually um economy a lot and i thought well maybe i could book an economy seat and then see that the flight was really crowded and like supersize my seat you know into um you know a, a more luxurious seat and i started thinking, well, I wonder where this McDonald's airline flies, get excited about it. And I looked up and I realized it was a mirage. It was actually, this was right after September 11th and they had redone the Continental Terminal. They'd actually rebranded it to uh, Newark Liberty International. And it was the reflection of the new food court sign on the window. And there happened to be a plane parked there. So it was just these three, uh, you follow me, it's like three things that lined yeah, up. Yeah. Um, but in that, you know, this all happened like 30 seconds. I thought that's how you do it. You know, if you're an airline and you want to innovate your brand, if you want to create new ideas, like don't worry about what the other airlines are doing because they're all doing it the same, more or less. You know, look at brands that you, that you admire uh, that are in other categories and then twist those examples back uh, with your brand. And I actually started a new practice at Interbrand that did just that, um, that was all about innovation and insights. And we would 
take clients on brand safaris where we would look at, um, we'd actually go out into New York and look at other brands that were doing cool things and twist those insights back with their brands. And that's actually what got the attention of, of Virgin and why I was hired to by them to be the, the head of brand over there because I had started getting some traction behind this idea of, of at the time we called it brand tango, um, but it's really the same idea of twisting. Yeah. Can you talk about what that is? Like dumb it down, explain it a little bit, the idea of really like twisting. Cause I know with um, your company that you've now started, that's one of the main things that you do. And with your consulting, that's one of the main things that you do. Yeah. The company's brand twist and the book is, is called twist how fresh perspectives build breakthrough brands. And it's basically, it's, you know, whatever category you're in, say you're even, you know, you're a dry cleaner, right? And you're looking, you know, sometimes I work with, I work with big companies and I work with really small businesses too. And you're trying to figure out how am I going to get more people to come into my business? And you look around you and you see what everybody else is charging and the kind of websites or advertising they're doing and what they're offering. And most of the time it's pretty much exactly the same. Um, so what I argue is if you keep your brand blinders on, if you look at what other companies are doing in your category, you're not going to come up with any ideas and you're not going to stand out. So it would be better to look at a brand that you admire outside of the category and twist those ideas. So say that dry cleaner said, you know, my favorite place to go and get coffee is Starbucks. And I love how, you know, I can customize my drink. You know, I want a double shot of this or a single shot of that, or, you know, it's seasonal. I get to have, um, you know, pumpkin latte. And they went back to the dry cleaner and said, you know what, it's summer. Let's, let's twist with Starbucks and, you know, not serve coffee in your dry cleaning. That's not what it's about. It's like looking into what Starbucks stands for. And you could say, you know what, uh, people are wearing white clothes. Let's offer them a double shot of starch you know, with their, um, or, you know, or, or whitener with their, for the summer, or we're going to make our menu, um, more, uh, easy to read, like in a Starbucks, or we're going to, um, you know, create, you know, maybe even you're not a dry cleaner anymore. Maybe you're a stain barista, you know, like, um, you know, just, but using that as the starting place to come up with new ideas. So that's what twisting is. It's really looking out of, a category for brands that have interesting twists that are doing interesting things and then twisting those ideas back with your business, um, to, you know, to come up with something unique. And, you know, I think, uh, it's not, it's not enough anymore to be really good at what you do. You know, there's sort of an assumption that most businesses these days are, have a certain level of quality and consistency, I think it's really important to be different. I think different is more important than, than just better. And prior to the whole McDonald's experience, you really never thought about doing things like that? Was that what why it was so big for you? And was anyone else really doing stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, people have always, there's a whole um, school of thought called lateral thinking, and there have been books written about it. And I think I was doing it kind of passively um, and almost by default, because one of the things about working at a big branding agency is we'd have lots of different clients. So maybe in the morning I was working on, you know, Heinz ketchup, in the afternoon I was working on Avon, and I was sort of by default um, subconsciously using trends and, um, you know, I don't know, different, maybe not recycling ideas, but, you know, if we were in a pinch, I'd be like, well, we tried this for another client. It didn't really work. You know, maybe it would be better for this client. But the difference when I started really actively doing this is that was my whole focus. And so I just started myself becoming a real, um, really conscious, I call it the triple A's of twisting. You know, the first A is becoming super aware of brands that just as a human being are doing something that interests me, you know, that, that make me pay attention. Could be a restaurant, could be a clothing brand, could be whatever. And then applying, that's the second, or sorry, the second A is analyzing. So you become aware, then you analyze, 
um, what's working. And I think the real difference where it started to take off is the third A, which is applying. So it's not enough to go, oh, Starbucks is doing something cool. They're a brand that I admire. Twisting is really saying, you know, this is specifically what they're doing and this is how I could apply it to my business. Yeah, that makes a lot a lot of sense. Um, and you mentioned earlier that you caught Virgin's attention by doing this. Um, what was it? What was it like to really be in charge of branding for a brand that was already so globally huge, rather than for a company where you're managing accounts? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the biggest thing was that Virgin is a very large global company, but in the U.S. was relatively unknown and or relatively misunderstood. Um, so, you know, in the U.K., there's Virgin everything. You know, there's Virgin trains and Virgin money. There's Virgin um, healthcare. Uh, there's Virgin active, which are health clubs. You know, it's like everybody knows that everybody knows Richard's story. Um you know, everybody knows details of the brand. And in the US, it was sort of like, oh, yeah, they're, that's that cool brand. What do they do again? Um, and a lot of people uh, associated Virgin with the mega stores, which were actually, you know, record stores um, that uh, when I started, we were in the process of shutting down um, just because, you know, the same way Blockbuster went away and tower records went away and you know all that it's just because the, the industry changed so you you right. get up in front of people and say you know i'm oh i'm the head of brand for virgin in north america and they'd be like oh yeah i was just um you know in your mega store last week or i just bought a virgin record and i'd be like well actually i don't think so <laughs> you know because that store's <laughs> been closed for a couple of years so it was interesting um it was an interesting position to be in because there was a lot of goodwill, sort of a lot of fumes for the brand, but people didn't really understand it. So part of my job was to work with the new business team and develop new Virgin businesses. Um, so like we developed Virgin Hotels, which is rapidly expanding, Virgin Voyages, which is their new cruise line, um, Virgin Galactic, which hopefully will um, launch next year. So it was really great to have like this base of cool, but then actually try to make it more meaningful. And of course, Virgin America, which was very successful for a while um, in, before it was sold in um, San Francisco. What were some of the means um, of like starting all these different branches of Virgin and making them known rather than people just kind of having an idea of what Virgin was? What were some of like what the actual processes you went through? Well, Virgin operates in a really interesting way in that um, most of the brands are launched with a partner. So a big part of my job was working with the business development guys to find the right investors. So we would create the concept and then we would prevent, we would present the concept to, you know, hundreds of in different meetings of investors in order to, um, you know, to get the capital. So it was like Virgin would bring the brand, the trademark license, and all the expertise of branding and marketing and, you know, consumer uh, behavior. But then we were also partnering with new people who were experts in the industry that we were looking to get into. So it was the first time, I think you asked before, you know, it was the first time I was ever on the client side. And for me, it was like going to business school, because uh, as an agency person, you always think that you are really understand your client's business and you try really hard to get smart about it, but it's not the same thing in, in my experience as actually being in the room and privy to all the financial data and understanding the way things work. So it was really interesting for me because I had never been to business school. I didn't study pure business when I was in college and um, I got really interested in kind of figuring out well, what makes something go from a good idea to actually something that'll go to the mark, you know, get to market. And that's a lot yeah. to do with, you know, the financial viability of something. It's also a lot to do with hiring the right CEO, 
chief operating officer, you know, getting people in there that can make the dream. And then it's, you know, part of it's being the right place at the right time. And also part of it is being willing to fail. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated about Virgin and, and Richard Branson is there is a corporate culture that does accept failure. You know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like you, this has to be a airtight deal. Everything has to go well there. You know, they, they understand that some things will work and if, and some things won't. And a couple of the businesses that I launched, uh, helped launch didn't work and that was okay. Um, cause we, you know, we learned a lot and we know that that's part of the process. Yeah. And learning all of the, you know, business side, the actual business side of, of how companies operate. Um, I'm sure that information was super useful to you when you decided that you wanted to start your own company. Yeah. So Richard Branson has this um, saying, which is, um, screw it, let's do it. It's actually the title of one of his books that I like a lot. And um, I had been at Virgin about five years and I was working with all these entrepreneurs and, you know, having a blast. And I came home and I, you know, I said to, to my husband, I said, you know, screw it, let's do it. I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to leave my corporate job and start my own company. And um, he said, uh, I don't think that's what that means. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at that point, um, you know, my daughter was close in middle school. Sasha was a little younger. You know, so we've got two college tuitions in our horizon. And I said, um, <laughs> I said, no, actually, that's exactly what it means because um, I wanted to have a little bit more flexibility and I wanted to build something of my own. And I did it in such a way I actually, I probably gave the longest notice of anybody on the planet. I gave them like six months. You know, I said, I'm, I'm going to leave in six months and start my own company and I'm going to help you make it really smooth. And um, it paid off because they were my first client. You know, I left in August, took a couple weeks vacation, started in September. It'll be nine years. And they were my first client and they're still one of my clients. Um, so, I, you know, I, I also learned that there are different ways to like break up and move on with companies without having it to be, you know, this terrible breakup. I still have great friends there when I'm yeah, you know, my, my office is in Westchester, but when I'm in the city, I, I stop by at Virgin all the time. They let me use their offices, you know, we're, uh, you know, so close with people there. And, and I, that was another life lesson that I learned as well. It just felt like I wanted to try something new and I wasn't going to disrespect a company that had helped me and that I really believe in, still believe in by saying, okay, here's my two week notice you know, which I was entitled to do in my contract. I didn't really have to give them more than that. And I said, you know, if it were me, I'd want, I'd want a heads up and I want somebody to work, yeah. to, you know, with me. And so, um, I don't know. I think that's also something when I mentor people, I, I say, you know, it's not always black or white, you know, maybe there's something that you want to do. Um, and if you're really passionate about it and you have a good relationship with the people that you work for, um, you know, I had the same thing, actually, a young woman who worked for me, she went on holiday to Ireland and she fell in love with a British guy and she came in and said, I'm going to, um, you know, I, I'm going to quit, you know, I'm, I'm going to move to London. I fell in love with this guy and here's my two weeks notice. And I said, well, you know, no, you're not, you're going to move to London, but you're going to keep working for me you know, from over there <laughs> uh, because we have, you know, we're, we're a global company with headquarters in London, you know, so why do you want to do that with no salary? Why don't you go, I'll get you a desk in the UK office. And if you're willing to work around the time zones, then, you know, at least for the first three months that you're over there, you know, you're moving halfway around the world to be with some guy that you, you know, just met. Let's, let's make it so you have some structure. And, uh, so, yeah. you know, so she did. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that Virgin was one of your, your first clients, uh, once you stopped working for them, what was it that you started to do on your own? I started basically to do the work that I was doing at Interbrand, but, you know, on my own. So I'm, I'm a brand strategist. So I help companies, who are either starting or want to, um, you know, refresh their brand strategy, take a look at, um, 
who they're targeting, what their promise is, um, how they're bringing it to life in their brand materials, like their website, their name, their logo. So I do a lot of brand strategy work, and I also do um, a lot of brand innovation work. So I help companies come up with new product ideas and um, that's and new service ideas. And you also have uh, a product of your own that's you know pretty new, right? Last I'm trying to think. My mom used to help work work oh, on it with school. you, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So can you talk about that? Yeah, so I, you know, I work with a lot of big companies, but I'm really passionate also about helping smaller entrepreneurs, you know, solopreneurs and people starting their own consulting or coaching businesses. And I, I felt like there's a gap in the marketplace because they, they can't afford, you know, the interbrands of the world. So I started Brand School where I take uh, cohorts of about 12 or so students uh, per semester and we do an eight to 10 week class where I do the same kind of consulting that I would do for larger clients, but they have to do a little bit more of the heavy lifting. So every week there's a video and homework. Um, and uh, once a week we get on a, a, a go to meeting call and we answer questions and review everybody's homework. And then we um, keep going and build on that. So I started that about a year after I started my business. So it's actually been a little while, but um, some some years I, I do four semesters, some I do one. Uh, right now I'm actually doing brand school one-on-one. So I'm working individually with entrepreneurs and coaching them. And uh, that's why I wrote my book a couple of years ago as well, because I, I wanted to reach more people. And I realized that a book was a great way you know, if, even if you couldn't afford brand school tuition, you know, everybody has 1995 and they can, uh, you know, buy, right. buy a book and start to at least start to work on their, their brand on their own. Yeah. And you've also, um, as you mentioned towards the beginning, you've, you've gotten to teach and give um, guest lectures at tons of universities, but you also help uh, teach a class at Stanford correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's, we've been doing that three years in a row. It's called uh, Project U and it's a class on personal branding. And it was created by a professor named Allison Kluger, who was actually my sophomore year roommate at Penn. So it does matter <laughs> who you meet in college and be nice to your roommates because we, uh, <laughs> we reconnected years and years later. And she had the idea after um, hearing Tyra Banks, who's a, you know, a supermodel and an incredible businesswoman, Tyra guest lecture came to Stanford and just did like a panel. And Allison went up to her afterwards and said, you know, you're such a natural, you're obviously an educator because America's Next Top Model is all about, you know, teaching these young women and men uh, about the modeling business. Let's create a class together. And um, they started to create a class and Tyra was a Anna Virgin, and um, they brought me in. So they teach a two-week class. I help um, teach one of the segments, uh, and we do a twisting exercise. And we've done it three years, the past three years, and actually got to know Tyra, who I'm a big fan of, and also done some one-on-one coaching with her. So it's all about your personal brand, especially if you're you know, an entrepreneur or a student, uh, and, you know, you think eventually you're going to want to maybe start a business and have somebody invest in you, you know, it's really important that you present yourself with a twist, with your personal twist, you know, what's different about you, what stands out uh, about you, why should I believe in you, maybe invest in your company. And so that's what we, we do. It's at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. Yeah, and I know your one of your own personal twists, one of your own branding strategies, is to put the color purple on literally everything. <laughs> I'm sitting here wearing a why, purple. Why? Why purple? So purple is. I believe it. <laughs> yeah, uh, purple is a twist of red and blue. So for hmm. me, it's a color that itself represents a twist of two different things. Um, it's also a color of royalty and uh, prosperity and a color honestly that I just like a lot so when I <laughs> you know when I started my own business uh, when I started brand twist after I left virgin I said well what am I how am I going to brand myself 
you know, I, I didn't have a corporate logo anymore. I had to come up with my own. And I actually did a study of, you know, what's out there in my industry. And it was a lot of like gray and red and yellow and kind of, you know, uh, classic colors, but maybe a little understated. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I want to shake things up. Um, I actually used as my, as one of my personal mentors to twist with was Rachel Ray, who, um, you know, I don't cook as you know at all. Um, but I love Rachel Ray's brand because I think she's just got a lot of personality and, um, you know, she stands out among, uh, a lot of the serious chefs. And I thought, well, I studied sort of how she did it. She uses like a bright orange on her every day with Rachel Ray and, She's not afraid to let her femininity show. And so I sort of twisted with Rachel and I said, okay, I'm going to, you know, talk about my kids and I'm going to be more feminine and approachable. And, and the color purple just kind of um, worked really well with that. Awesome. So you mentioned that you teach a class on personal branding and you were out here in the Bay Area a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we all, my family, you, Fred, we all got dinner and, um, we were sitting across the table from one another and you're, you were wondering, so what do they do here at Cal to help student athletes with any personal branding stuff? Like, do you guys do anything about that? Have you been doing anything about that? And I'm just sitting there like, yeah, well, uh, I've started to think about it recently. I've been working on this podcast idea. And then like, next thing you know, like, we're in this mini consulting twisting session about the, this very podcast. And I was just sitting across the table from you and in my head, I'm just going, I'm such an idiot. I'm literally related to one of the like leading specialists in branding in the, the country. And it didn't even once occur to me that I, I had someone I could ask to help me um, along with the process, the best way to, to name and brand the podcast. And um, we don't have time to do all that much, uh, about showing people what you do in terms of like, if we were to have a consulting session, but, um, I did tell you, I was initially thinking of naming the podcast broken compass. And I just wanted you to tell, uh, the audience kind of what you told me, um, if you were having a consulting session with me about that name and why it wasn't a good fit and something I should have gone for instead. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, you know, the most important thing in naming is like super hard, you know, and there's no right or wrong answer, right? So um, I think what I told you I liked about Broken Compass is it had a visual to it, um, you know, so I think names these days are very visual. If you think of Apple or Twitter or, you know, Firefox, you can close your eyes and see. But at the same time, I felt like it could, Broken Compass could be anybody's podcast. And I think when you're doing something so personal, like you're doing with, you know, sharing your story and asking, you know, bringing yourself into the brand and, you know, you are the brand, you are the podcast. I just encourage you to, to think of names that, you know, couldn't be anybody else's, you know, I could have a podcast called Broken you know, compass, a lot of people could, because it just really says that people are trying to find their way. So I think it's really important to twist your personal brand, uh, you know, for you and for everybody else with your professional brand and use that as the basis for a name brainstorming. Yeah. And there were other things you mentioned about it too, like saying like, I don't want to be known as the guy that like, has no direction yeah. or, you know, stuff that kind of get associated with that. And some of the other advice he gave me was like, um, and this is along the lines of doing something that's like personal to me. Um, the, the advice he gave me to actually help find something was like, what's a story that's like only unique to me or a name that could only be unique to me. And um, I go in, into one of the previous podcasts why I ended up naming it so stignatious. But um, yeah, so I'm, I do a podcast where I, where I tell the actual origin story of that. But like that word literally isn't a word. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And like I love it so much more than I – and I thought I liked Broken Compass. But um, I don't know. Even that just like 20, 30 minutes across the table <laughs> at dinner – 
um, was was very useful. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was was excellent pizza. Yeah, well, you know, Um, I think, you know, you're right. It's focusing on a positive and also, you know, breaking through. You hear so so stagnatious and you want to know more, you know, and I think branding is storytelling and the best stories draw you in. Right. They don't they don't throw everything at you at Mm. once. They say, oh, wait, what's that about? I want to know more. You keep kind of peeling the onion. And um, I think that's really, you know, that's like the first line of my book It's a great brand is a story well told. And, you know, having a narrative that you get excited about telling and that people remember or repeat to other people is really important. Absolutely. Um, and so one, I want to thank you for that, uh, that bit of advice. And two, I apologize for not realizing sooner <laughs> it happens. that I could have been asking you about this stuff. Yeah, it happens all the time. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, with that said, uh, we're going to move into the final three, which are the last three questions that I ask everybody that comes on this show. So the first one is, what's one thing that you've read, watched, or listened to lately that inspired you and you think uh, people should check out? I'm listening to this podcast right now called The Dream about multi-level marketing, and it's fascinating. It's about human psychology and um just why we buy and who we are as uh, sellers. And I highly recommend it. It's called The Dream. The Dream. Okay. Um, The next would be who or what was your biggest inspiration to figuring out your passions and acting on them? God, there's been so many people. Um, when I was younger, I really uh, was inspired by Judy Bloom. I went, I actually won a contest in like junior high and I got to go hear her. And I remember uh, just listening to her as an author and I loved her books, but I loved hearing about the craft of writing and what inspired her and um, made me want to have writing as some part of my, it was like my rock star (laughs) was this uh, this (laughs) young adult uh, literature uh, writer, but Judy Bloom was among many, many other people an influence on me. Um, And my last question to you would be, what is your current goal? That's a good question. I, this is kind of sound kind of basic, maybe show my age, but I'm really trying to master Instagram right now. Uh, (laughs) I, I very comfortable with a lot of other kinds of social media for whatever reason. I'm, I'm a little freaked out by Instagram. So I have an intern um, for the summer (laughs) college student, and she is pushing me out of my comfort zone with Instagram. So I hope by the end of the summer, you'll see a lot more of a brand twist on Instagram. Uh, that's, that's pretty funny. Um, the, the very last thing, Julie, if anyone wanted to um, reach out to you for whatever reason with not a generic <laughs> message because she won't I respond, won't respond to that. Um, what, what would be the best way for people to get in contact with you and one more time if you could tell everybody um your the name of your book and where they could find it sure so the best way to get in touch with me is actually through my website so if you do brandtwist.com there's a contact uh you know button there and i do read those they get right to me and i will pay attention to those so brandtwist.com and you can actually get the book which is called twist how fresh perspectives um, build breakthrough brands on my website, brandtwist.com, and I will send you a special signed, glossy, nice copy. Um, but you can also get it on Amazon as well. And uh, happy, happy either way. And I would say a second goal is I'm trying to get more Amazon reviews. <laughs> I'm up to 67 and I want 100 <laughs> by the end of the year. So uh, if you do reach out to me and I say that you've. Uh, you know, read the book and written me a review, you will definitely get my attention because I'm um, that's <laughs> my personal goals for 2019. All right, Julie, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, come on and chat with me. My pleasure. And um, I appreciate all, all the input and your experiences that you shared.
thanks for the opportunity and these are great questions and I had a lot of fun. I'm so lucky to have access to someone like that that is so experienced and passionate about what they do. And it was an honor to try and help her pass on her knowledge to all of my listeners. If you want to know more, again, check out her book on Amazon. But until next time, please leave a rating. Please subscribe. Please tell one of your friends about it. And most of all, please stay stigmatious. Stay stigmatious.